Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. This week's episode is the opening chapters of Douglas Wilson's Heaven Misplaced, Christ's Kingdom on Earth. Listen to the brand new audiobook available now on the Canon app. Introduction This is a book about the future history of our world, about the future and destiny of the human race. Since the future is not something we are permitted to see directly, only God sees the end from the beginning. In order for this book to be anything other than an exercise in conceit, it has to be based squarely on what God has revealed to us in His Word, what God actually promised us. Only God knows the end from the beginning, and while He has not given us every detail about the future, He has in fact revealed a great deal to us. But unfortunately, what has been given to us has been greatly obscured by discouraging and mistaken assumptions. Most Christians believe in one way or another that the history of our planet is going to go from bad to worse, accelerating as we get near the end. At the same time, all Christians believe that after human history is over and the day of resurrection is past, our experience will be one of glory replaced by a greater glory, one after the other, world without end. No Christian is pessimistic about final glory but most Christians are pessimistic about the course of history prior to the second coming of Christ. In this view, the world is God's Vietnam, and the return of Christ consists of the few lucky ones helicoptered off a roof during the fall of Saigon. When we get out of here, then there will be good times, but not before. The view advanced in this book is almost precisely the reverse. This book is an introduction to historical optimism. This is the view that the gospel will continue to grow and flourish throughout the world. More and more individuals will be converted, the nations will stream to Christ, and the Great Commission will finally be successfully completed. The earth will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When that happens, generation after generation will love and serve the Lord faithfully and then the end will come. But I have already noted that most Christians don't think this way, and so admittedly, this is going to be a tough sell. This could quite possibly include many who decide, for various reasons, to read this book. So let's make an arrangement, you and me. Whenever someone picks up a work of fiction, there is an implied arrangement between the author and the reader, something the author counts on and the reader gives him and that something is called the willing suspension of disbelief. Someone can really enjoy the Lord of the Rings and agree to temporarily set aside his knowledge that orcs and elves are not exactly real. But once the reader is in story grip, the story comes alive and is made real to him because of that willing suspension of disbelief. Even if the reader does not really believe in it after he has closed the book, he still knows the story far better than he would have if he had been saying, yeah, right, every other page. He knows the story from within, even if he cannot accept it at the last. So let's take the example of Tolkien's great work. He was once asked whether he believed that Middle-earth was real. His reply was, one hopes. Even a work of fiction, if it is compelling enough, can awaken a deep desire for it to have been true. So here is my proposal. 
There are many Christians who believe that the future of our world, prior to the second coming, is bleak indeed. I am asking them to read this little book as though it were a work of fiction. Just for a short while, I am asking for that willing suspension of disbelief. And if that request is granted, then I believe that a striking feature of this kind of historical optimism will become plain. Every Christian can agree on one thing at least. Wouldn't it be glorious if this really were true? For my part, I want to write as though it were a story because it actually concerns the most wonderful story in the world, which, as it turns out, is the story of the world. And this means that a few things will be different. For example, this story I am asking you to suspend disbelief about is built on passages that are probably familiar to you. However, there are different ways to understand many of them, so I'm going to suggest a take that may be unfamiliar. You'll see the difference when the story is told that way. So yes, this is a work of theology, and I will be referring to many scripture passages. But I don't want to assemble a rock pile of proof texts. My goal, corresponding to the request I have made of the reader, will be to try to demonstrate how lovely this belief is. This is an exercise not so much in systematic theology, but in lyrical theology. Note, systematic theology is the attempt to organize Christian doctrine into an articulate pattern, whereas lyrical theology is a term first used by S.T. Kimbrough Jr. in 1984 to describe theology that is couched in poetry, hymns, and songs, and liturgy. It is characterized by rhythm and expressive of emotion and sentiment. Of course, if it is not true, then it doesn't matter how lovely it is. We have all had some pretty good daydreams. But if it is altogether lovely, then perhaps some might be persuaded to reconsider if it might actually be true. And if that point is reached, it will become possible to build one's Christian life on the foundation of all encouragement. Do I really believe that, prior to the return of Christ, the earth will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea? Do I really believe that all the nations of men will stream to their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Do I really believe that Jesus Christ is the desire of nations? I really do. And I hope by the time we are done with this short book, the unconvinced reader will at least be able to say, One hopes. Chapter 1 On the Mountain of the Lord Wine on the Lees, Well Refined In his great sermon, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis has an astute observation. He refers to the reality of the coming resurrection in this way. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. The point here is not to take anything away from the glory of Lewis's observation, but it does need to be said that the pages of the Old Testament were rustling with a magnificent expectation also. These prophecies and glimmers and glorious sketches looked forward expectantly to the coming of the Messiah, and not only to the coming of the Messiah, but to everything else that he would bring with him. We celebrate this every Christmas. 
but we sometimes don't pay close enough attention to the wording of these inspired rumors and rustlings. In chapter 7 of Isaiah, we read this, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 7.14 Two chapters later, continuing the same great theme, the prophet tells us that the Messiah will come from Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Isaiah 9.2 Cross-reference Matthew 4.16 The thing we must realize is that these prophecies concern far more than just the arrival of the baby Jesus. The prophet Isaiah has more on his mind than providing feel-good quotes for our Christmas cards. Here is something he says in the next breath, something that has shown up on numerous Christmas cards. But we need to stop for a moment and reflect on what he is actually saying. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice, from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Isaiah 9, 6-7 When the Christ comes, he will be born of a virgin. When he comes, he will be Emmanuel, God with us. When he comes, we will call him the Prince of Peace. Is that all? Is that it? No. The prophet explicitly tells us that the Messiah is going to accomplish a revolution in the government of heaven and earth. This son, this son that is given to us, will take the government upon his shoulder. The results will be gradual, not instantaneous, but persistent and steady. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. When the Messiah comes, he will assume his rightful place on the throne of David, as he has done, and he is going to establish his kingdom in judgment and justice. That process will begin when the child is born, and the prophecy will be fulfilled completely, henceforth even forever. If anyone still doubts, remember that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will make sure it happens. Historical optimism about Christ's kingdom on earth means that we believe, because the child was born two millennia ago, that since that time, the increase of his government and peace has been unceasing. We believe that the government is on his shoulder, not that it should be. Jesus believed the same thing, because when he sent his disciples out, it was with this truth as the basis for the commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew 28, 18, NIV. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 25-26 In the common assumption shared by many Christians at the Lord's return, the first enemy to be destroyed is death. But the apostle here says that it is the last enemy to be destroyed. The Lord will rule from heaven, 
progressively subduing all his enemies through the power of the gospel, brought to the nations by his church. And then, when it would be easy to believe that it just couldn't get any better, the Lord will come and deliver the kingdom to his Father, and God will be all in all. But there is something else. What will it be like as his kingdom grows and expands? What will happen to our sin-plagued world as his government and peace increases? The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Isaiah 11, 6-10 Note about the root of Jesse. At the beginning of this chapter, Isaiah prophesies that there shall come forth a rod out of the branch of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots, Isaiah 11.1. This branch is Jesus, a descendant of King David, whose father was Jesse. Now, this language is admittedly over the top. It is so over the top that most Christians just relegate it to some time after the Lord comes again. That is the only way they can see that a fulfillment could ever be possible. But there is a slight problem with this view. The glorious language, the too-good-to-be-true language, is in the first half of this passage. Predatory beasts become herbivores, and little kids are playing with the cobras. This has to be after the resurrection, right? This has to be after the close of history, doesn't it? No, because verse 10, the one that begins with the words, and in that day, is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 15, justifying his mission to the Gentiles 2,000 years ago. And again, Esaias saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles trust. Romans 15.12 The great Apostle Paul is appealing to Isaiah as a justification for his preaching to the Gentiles. And since then, we have 2,000 years of the Lord's government and peace increasing. I asked earlier what the characteristics of his rule would be. The passage from Isaiah 11 should take your breath away. The earth will be as full of the knowledge of God as the Pacific Ocean is wet. The root of Jesse will be put up as an emblem, and all the Gentile nations will stream to him. And when they put their trust in him, they will become people of God and will be taken up to the Lord's holy mountain. What is that mountain like? And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people, and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth. For the Lord hath spoken it, 
Isaiah 25, 6-8 The Lord himself will make a banquet to end all banquets. The feast will be for all people, and it will be a feast full of marbled beef. The best wine, the aged wine, will be served to all men. And as the banquet is served, it will culminate in the destruction of death itself. The Lord will wipe every tear away. And as we see in Romans, all this happens in the course of history, not after history is over. When death is destroyed, as mentioned here, that is when the Lord comes. But the coming of the Lord delivers the coup de grace to the last, most persistent enemy, death. The growth of the kingdom of God prior to that finale, the establishment of the mountain of the Lord on the earth, has subdued every lesser enemy. Jesus Christ has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and in that place, He has been given universal rule and authority now. And the Bible says that He will remain seated there until all His enemies are made His footstool. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Psalm 110 verse 1 The Lord reigns from heaven, exercising all rule and dominion. From that place he will destroy every enemy and every thought that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. 2 Corinthians 10, 1-5 The Lord's promises to us are truly staggering, and it is not surprising that we cannot get our minds completely around it. But he delights to give to his people, and one of the greatest gifts that he has given to us is the future. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. 1 Corinthians 2.9 We must fix it in our hearts and minds that these staggering promises do not begin to be fulfilled at the close of history. They began to be fulfilled when a child was born, when a son was given. What is the future of this world, prior to the Lord's coming, going to be like? We can't say, because nothing that good has ever entered into the heart of man. We are slow to believe all that is promised, but the glorious fruition is headed our way nonetheless. Questions for discussion Once the willing suspension of disbelief has been granted, this affects the reading of many passages that have a face value that is very different than our accustomed reading. 1. Once the Messiah comes, what will his government and peace do? What are the implications of this? Number two. When did the Apostle Paul locate the beginning of the fulfillment of Isaiah's great prophecy? Number three. When the root of Jesse is established as a standard, what will all the Gentile nations do? Chapter two. Heaven misplaced. Living in colonies of heaven. The first Easter occurred at the time of Passover, which is when the first fruits of the barley crop were presented to the Lord. Pentecost, soon to follow, was when the first fruits of the wheat harvest were presented. As we consider the implications of the resurrection of Jesus, we need to think of it in the right fashion, which means that we have to reflect on the meaning of the first fruits. When we grasp this point, it will transform our understanding of human history. Indeed, it will transform our understanding of heaven and earth and all things between.
But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 20-26 Christ came back from the grave, and he did so in a glorified physical body, the same but transformed body that had been laid in the tomb. Verse 20. He did this as the first fruits. Verse 20 meaning that his resurrection was one small, tiny part of the general resurrection to come. Adam introduced death into the world, and the last Adam introduced resurrection life into the world. Verse 21. All shall die in this world because of Adam, and so all shall live in this world because of Christ. Verse 22. But we must get the order right. The first fruits come first and then the general harvest which occurs at Christ's coming. Verse 23. When Christ comes again, the kingdom which he has established with all rule, authority, and power will be delivered up to the Father. Verse 24. For Christ must reign at the right hand of the Father until all his enemies are subdued. Verse 25. The last enemy to be subdued in this process will be death. Verse 26 after which Christ will come again and render all things back to his Father. So we need to get this image fixed in our minds and hearts. One of the things we have to resist is a false image of human history, however orthodox we might believe we are on the historicity of Christ's resurrection. This false image works in this way. We think that human history is basically all the same, at least from the fall to the second coming. Things go on pretty much as they have always done. In the middle of this grim history, God placed the cross and resurrection, that resurrection being a completely anomalous event in an otherwise unchanged world. This cross and resurrection are the gospel, which means we can be saved, which means in turn that we will go to heaven when we die. But try this image instead. At the fall, Human history became a movie we are watching in a grainy, scratchy black and white. When Christ rose from the grave, a point of blinding light appeared at that place, and from that place, odd things started to happen, not in the plot lines of the story at first, but rather in the nature of the storytelling itself. Color started to slowly spread out from that resurrection point, and the graininess started to slowly disappear and is gradually transformed into some kind of HD TV. And of course, over time, the storyline itself was also affected. We have all seen this kind of thing numerous times. When Aslan breathed on the stone statues and they all began coming back to life in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that provides the kind of image we should have. When that kind of thing starts to happen, we all look at the screen intently, staring expectantly. So this means that the resurrection was not an odd event in the first century with all normal things staying just the same. 
The resurrection was the central event of all history, but we have to take this as the central event for all history. It defines history. It establishes the trajectory of the remaining story. We have missed this in part because we have been distracted by a conclusion drawn from our individualistic premises. Because we start with the salvation of our own stock of wheat, we find ourselves leaving out the story of the general harvest. But if we started with the harvest, our own stock would not be left out. Here is how it works. When we die, before the harvest of all history, what happens to us? We of course go to be with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. But over time, this intermediate state, this very temporary state of affairs, somehow became for us our central hope, something we call going to heaven. We have drifted into a very Greek idea of the immortality of the soul, up in another heavenly dimension somewhere, and we have lost the Hebraic truth of the resurrection of the dead. Instead of physical, we have spiritual, and instead of here, we have substituted there. But this is not the biblical hope. The Bible doesn't generally speak in our popular way of going to heaven when we die. Not that it is technically wrong. If we die before the second coming, we will go to be with the Lord. We do go to heaven when we die. The problem is that this interim state has become our overarching paradigm, replacing the biblical hope. The final biblical hope is heaven coming here. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6.10 Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Matthew 5.5 We look to heaven, not so much because that is where we are going in order to be finally saved, but because that is where our salvation is coming from. Philippians 3.20-21 So the resurrection is not simply a peculiar event in an old and decaying world. It is rather the defining event of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. It is harbinger of all things made new. We therefore cannot know the resurrection with an old way of knowing. Resurrection life is the new ordinary. The materialism that came from the Enlightenment was a concerted way to get us back to the old way of knowing. The old way of relating to the authorities, the old way of dying. We are being asked to know the world as though Jesus had not been raised in the middle of history. But he has been, and Jesus is now Lord, and Caesar cannot compete with this. This new order has been established in the resurrection. If the dead are not raised, then rulers can rule in the old-fashioned way, off with his head. That was an argument that, as it seemed for a time, had no proper answer. But the dead are raised, and moreover, the dead are raised in the middle of human history. The harvest has begun, and the first fruits have already been presented to God. What could be more unsettling to tyrants? Marx was right about a certain kind of religion. Pie in the sky when we die by and by religion is an opiate for the masses. But resurrection life and power in the middle of history is a nightmare for the principalities and powers, and their only device is to persuade the churches to stop talking about it. But we believe, and therefore we must speak. Now this means that if the first fruits happened 2,000 years ago, 
and the general harvest is some time in the future, this historical interim is not a time in which nothing is happening. Rather, to return to Paul's point, it is the time in which we, through the authority of the resurrection gospel, are to be laboring to put down all rule and authority and power, bringing every thought captive. All this was established in principle in the resurrection, Romans 1.4, but it was formally inaugurated when Christ ascended into the heavenly places to be received in glory by the Ancient of Days. The ascension was the glorious coronation of the Lord Jesus. After his resurrection, he established to his disciples that he was in fact alive forever, and then he ascended into the heavens. When he did this, he was received by the Ancient of Days and was given universal authority over all the nations of men. Earth now has a new capital city, heaven, and we are called to learn how to live in terms of this. And as we learn, we are to teach. For our conversation, literally citizenship, is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Philippians 3.20-21 As N.T. Wright notes, Caesar Augustus established the Roman colony of Philippi after the Battle of Philippi in 42 B.C. and the Battle of Actium in 31 B.C. He did this by settling his veterans there, many of whom were Roman citizens. This is the backdrop for Paul's comment to the church that was located in this same Philippi. The Roman citizens of Philippi were there as Roman colonists, intended to extend the range and force of Roman influence throughout the Mediterranean world. They were not there in order for them to leave Philippi in order to come back to Rome for retirement. In this passage, St. Paul is using this striking metaphor for a reason. He says that our citizenship is in heaven, verse 20. We look toward heaven because that is where Jesus went, which means that heaven is the place he is going to come from when he returns to earth. The metaphor translated, this means that Jesus was going to come from Rome to Philippi. He was not going to take Philippi to Rome. And when the Savior, the Lord Jesus, comes, he is going to transform our lowly bodies so that they become like his glorious body, verse 21. What he does in this final transformation is in complete accord with the authority he is exercising now as he brings all things into subjection to himself, verse 21. In multiple places, the New Testament tells us that he is doing this. If we take this simple metaphor of Paul's at face value, it clears up a great deal for us. Christians now are living in the colonies of heaven. Now, colonies are not established as feeder towns for the mother country, just the opposite, actually. The mother country feeds the colonies. How you take the line of the story matters a great deal. Many Christians believe the cosmos has an upper and lower story, with earth as the lower story and heaven as the upper story. You live the first chapters of your life here, then you die and you move upstairs to live with the nice people because only nice people are allowed on the second story. There might be some kind of sequel after that, but it is all kind of hazy. Maybe we all go live in the attic. 
but the basic movement in this thinking is from a Philippi below to a Rome above. But what Paul teaches here is quite different. We are establishing the colonies of heaven here, now. When we die, we get the privilege of visiting the heavenly motherland, which is quite different than moving there permanently. After this brief visit, the Lord will bring us all back here for the final and great transformation of the colonists and the colonies. In short, our time in heaven is the intermediate state. It is not the case that our time here is the intermediate state. There is an old folk song that says, This world is not my home, I'm just passing through. This captures the mistake almost perfectly. But as the saints gather in heaven, which is the real intermediate state, the growing question is, when do we get to go back home? And so this means that heaven is the place that we are just passing through. The ideas here, Jesus as Savior, Jesus the Lord, our citizenship, a return that transforms, are all regal and political images. And what this means is that the emperor is coming here, and we are the advanced team laboring to prepare for that glorious visit. But though Paul draws on this imagery from certain concepts in the Roman Empire, there are places where the analogy obviously breaks down. The pagan emperors did not elevate the people they ruled, but rather just sat on top of a mountain of peons. But Christ intends to transform our lowly bodies so that they become like His. This means He is promoting us. We are becoming royalty, and the colonies will become as glorious as the motherland. Representing and establishing royalty on earth has been God's design and purpose from the beginning. One of the indicators of this purpose and intent that is frequently missing is that famous phrase, image of God. The phrase, image of God, was one in the ancient world that indicated a divinely imparted royal status. But unlike the pagan use of the phrase, this royalty in Genesis was bestowed on all men and women, and not just a solitary ruler. Through our sin, we succeeded in marring this royal image. But God never relinquished His determination to establish it among us regardless. This is why Jesus came in the way that He did to restore the image of God in man. This is why Peter can say that we are a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2.9. And it is also what Paul is talking about in this place. Christ is going to transform our lowly bodies so that they become like His glorious body. Until we grasp this, we will continue to misplace heaven. Christ is going to come from heaven when He returns. And until He returns, He rules from heaven which we know on the basis of the ascension. Consider what was given to Christ when he ascended into the throne room of God. Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Psalm 110 verse 1. Whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Acts 3.21. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Daniel 7.14 And so, knowing this, we wait and work in preparation, patiently, knowing that our labors here are not in vain. 
In this hope, we take care not to misplace heaven. The kingdom comes. The kingdom does not go. So Christ is going to come from heaven, and in the meantime, he rules from heaven. Our faith, when we consider the ascension of Christ, is the basis for our faith in the coming descent of Christ. If we stop the story at the ascension, we are misplacing the point of heaven. If we stop the story when we follow Christ to heaven at the time of our deaths, we are misplacing the point of heaven also. Christ has ascended, and this is why the earth is going to be redeemed, and the whole creation is groaning, longing for this to happen. We who have the Spirit long for this as well. One of the purposes of this small book is to teach us how to long for this more intently. The progression is glorious from Easter to the Ascension, and from the Ascension to Pentecost. On Pentecost Sunday, we rejoice in the fact that the Comforter has been given, poured out upon us, so that the world might be prepared for the final consummation. This is a central role of the Spirit in the world, and it ties in directly with the purposes of God for this world that we have already addressed. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwelt in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. Likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 11 through 12, 19 through 23, 26 through 28. The Spirit of Resurrection is the Spirit who indwells us, verse 11. Because our bodies will be raised, we should behave with those bodies now, verse 12. Those who live for the flesh will die. Those who do not will live, verse 13. Those who are Spirit-led in this way, these are the sons of God, verse 14. Our relationship with the Father is intimate and holy, verse 15. This is how the Spirit bears witness by cleaning up our act, verse 16. But childhood and adoption cannot be separated from the issues of inheritance, verse 17. This is an inheritance of glory, verse 18. The whole creation is longing for this moment, looking forward to it, verse 19. The creation was originally subjected to vanity, but in hope, verse 20. This is because the creation will be liberated into the same freedom from corruption that we will have. Verse 21. The whole creation groans in the pains of childbirth. Verse 22. 
Not only does the creation groan, but we who have the Spirit also groan, with the resurrection in view. Verse 23. This groaning is in hope and patient waiting. Verses 24 through 25. The Holy Spirit helps us with this task of groaning. Verse 26. The Spirit prays for us toward this end. Verse 27. And this is what Paul is talking about when he says that all things work together for good. Verse 28. This provides us with a straight line to glory. Verses 29 through 30. When Adam sinned and fell, the whole creation was subjected to the bondage of corruption. Adam was the Lord over the creation, having been given dominion. And as the vice regent, this meant that when he fell, the whole thing fell. When the king fell, the kingdom also fell. In the same way, when the second Adam came into the world, it was to do a work of restoration. But the fall was great, and the restoration will not be accomplished without much groaning. The groaning here is an image taken from the pains of childbirth, the pains of delivery. Verse 22. The created order is pregnant, and at the consummation of all things, will give birth to the new order. This is not something we watch as unaffected bystanders. The creation groans this way. Verse 22. We, because we have the Spirit, groan in a similar way also. Verse 23. And the Spirit knows our weakness. He knows that we don't even know what kind of baby it will be. We are like Eve before her first child. Imagine what it would have been like to not even know what was happening. And so the Spirit participates in this groaning of childbirth. Verse 26. Of course, there are two mistakes to avoid. We are talking about a complete transformation, not a minor refurbishment. One mistake is that of thinking this creation will be burnt to a cinder and not replaced, or replaced by something completely unrelated. The other mistake is that of thinking that this creation will simply be tidied up a bit, with a certain amount of polish and shine. The Lord comes back with some touch-up paint, and regiments of angels scatter around the world to give our Botox treatments but we should take a cue from Christ's resurrected body and our resurrected bodies. These bodies are part of this creation, right? And yet they will carry over into the next. Your resurrected body will need something to stand on. The body that goes into the ground is like a kernel of corn, 1 Corinthians 15.36. There is continuity between the old body and the new, of course, but there is a discontinuity of glory. It is the same with the creation. The whole creation will die and be gloriously raised. Or to use another image, the old creation will give birth to the new, and we cannot even begin to fathom how glorious the new will be. Remember that Jesus was born here too. He is longing to come back as well. But when it first begins to sink in on us that God has not given up on this world, but intends to transform it in glory, certain common questions arise. Didn't Jesus tell his disciples that he was going up into heaven in order to prepare a place for them? In my Father's house are many mansions. Yes, the word is monet, and the ESV has rooms. The word denotes temporary lodging, as you would find in a hotel. In this case, it would have to be the nicest resort hotel you ever heard of, a 5,000-star resort hotel. 
But doesn't Peter tell us that the elements will melt with a fervent heat and good riddance? 2 Peter 3.10 The word for elements is stoicheia and is the same word that Paul uses in Galatians for the elemental spiritual forces that had kept them in bondage in the Old Covenant. When we read elements, we tend to think of the periodic table and not of the spiritual forces that governed the old world. So in my view, Peter is talking about the spiritual government of the world. He compares this event to the flood, which had accomplished the same thing. Verse 6. But even if the reader doesn't buy it, and wants to take it as referring to the meltdown of the cosmos, Romans 8 requires that this be a transformative meltdown, not an annihilating meltdown. If our body melts down in this conflagration, our body will nevertheless be raised. Because of the Spirit's presence in the world, we have a very great hope. What is the nature of the groaning? What is the Spirit helping us do? The Spirit releases us from our debts to the flesh, verse 12. The Spirit leads us into virtue, verse 13, putting to death the misdeeds of the body. The Spirit stirs us up to pray to our Father, verse 15. The Spirit seals our coming inheritance in glory, verse 17. The Spirit teaches us to groan for better days, verses 23 and 26, and not to interpret the world better in our own limited, truncated, and pathetic categories, verse 27. He is the one who searches the deep things of God, and He is the one who knows what is coming. He is the one who groans most eagerly. Questions for discussion Many Christians have confused our final hope of the resurrection with the interim hope that God offers us when we die and go to be with Him. This has led to some serious distortions, and it is not too much to say that heaven has been misplaced. 1. When Jesus rose from the dead in the middle of human history, was this simply a very odd event, or did it have ramifications for history itself? 2. When Jesus ascended into heaven and approached the Ancient of Days, what was given to him? 3. When Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, in what three senses has this created a longing, a groaning for the day of resurrection? If you enjoyed this episode, listen to the full audiobook now on the Canon app.